Disclaimer, this content is meant for information only and not as a diagnosis or medical treatment for any condition. If you or a loved one needs help, please seek out a qualified medical professional for assistance. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Katie Osta, BSN, RN, IBCLC, and infant feeding specialist. Quench your thirst for knowledge and travel with me across the nation to discover, learn, collaborate, and better serve clients from all over the globe. Let's ride and thrive together. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Lawrence Kotlow, DDS, a pediatric dentist and a solo practitioner in Albany, New York from 1974 to currently. Dr. Kotlow attended Albany College of Pharmacy and graduated in 1968, was a graduate of Sunny Buffalo School of Dentistry in 1972, did his children's dental residency at Cincinnati in 1974, was the past president of the Third District Dental Society in 1995. Won the President's Award, 3rd District Dental Society in 1996. Won the 3rd District Dental Society, 3 Clinician Awards. Uh, was a board-certified pediatric dentist in 1980. A life member of the American Dental Association. A life fellow of the American Board of Pediatric Dentistry. A life member of the New York State Dental Association and the 3rd District Dental Society of New York. A member of the American Academy of Physiological Medical Dentistry, member of the Academy of Laser Dentistry since 2000, Mastership Academy of Laser Dentistry, won the Leon Goldman Award for Clinical Excellence in 2014, won the John Solinsky Distinguished Service Award in 2022, was awarded a Speaker and Trainer Award using multiple laser and wavelengths since 1998 for dental procedures, advanced laser proficiency in the Erbium YAG, Standard Proficiency in the Diode Lasers, the ICAP 2018 Professional Educator Award, IATP Founding Member, author of over 30 peer-reviewed articles, two texts, The Atlas of Tots and SOS for Tots about lasers, infant phrenectomies, and breastfeeding, contributed to various chapters and texts on laser and pediatric dentistry in dental clinics of North America, Principles and Practice of Laser Dentistry, Editions 1, 2, and 3, U.S. Dentistry in 2006, Laser in Endodontics, and the New York Top Docs Dentist 2021 and 2022, and Today's Dentistry Recognition in 2001 and 2022, Leader in Education. That is quite the list there because this is Dr. Lawrence Kotlow who has been recognizing, you know, assessing for and treating ankle glossier or tongue tie since 1974. You guys, he is absolutely amazing and a provider who really, like this says, founded the AATP, the International Association of Tongue Tie Professionals, and has been very instrumental in forming the tongue tie practices that we all see nowadays. He has been a leader in this field for decades and has performed over 10,000 tongue tie releases and used the laser for over 40,000 laser surgery. So please welcome Dr. Kotlow to the podcast today. I love your office. Thank you for letting me come. I have to say that, you know, it's, it really is an honor to be here. You've been recognizing and treating tongue tie Dr. Kotlow since before, I mean, really before anyone was recognizing and treating him. I mean, I know it's in the literature hundreds of years ago, but in terms of modern medicine, I don't know anyone who's been recognizing and treating Ankyloglossia since the 70s. Like, I don't think I mean, you'd know better than I do, but I don't think there is anybody else, is there? Well, you know what? I finished my residency in 74, set up my practice. And 
we know nothing about the time other than for food and taste. And when I started seeing kids coming in the interior to the tip, I don't use the interior posterior ties. It's going to be class one, two, three, or four. But severe. And you have to put them in the OR. They wouldn't do it under three. You have to go to an oral surgeon. It's elective. Sometimes they wouldn't do it. So I picked up my textbooks and I started learning how to do time ties. Yeah. And that, that was where I started to do phrenectomies. But in those days, we didn't have license. Okay. You use electro surgery, you use scalpels or scissors. Um, I didn't like scalpel and scissors because it's like cutting yourself with a piece of glass. You're just cutting tissue and you go through all the inflammatory processes. Electro surgery was quick and easy, didn't bleed. But if you did kids under two, many of them would end up in the emergency room with an IV because it's a burn and they would just shut down. So I didn't do very many kids under the age of two. Also, my kids were born in the early 70s. 20% of women in this country were in nursing. And if you go by the studies, which are all wrong, only 3 to 5% of babies are typed up. Yeah. But if you look at the studies that show 40% of babies have reflux, and it's not reflux, it's air-induced reflux. These babies all are tongue-tied. Over 95% of the time, it's terrible. So I think you're closer to 40% of babies are tongue-tied. Today, we've gone from nursing only because you can't afford formula to everybody wants to nurse because they know it's better. It's not one socioeconomic group. It's across the board. And more people are nursing, therefore more people are going to come over difficulty. So now you've got close to 4 million babies being nursed. And that's just in this country. I mean, it's like, if you want to call it a pandemic, you can't because it's all over the world. I mean, I've lectured in Europe. I've lectured in the Middle East. I've lectured in Canada. I've lectured in Australia and the Scandinavian countries. And it's the same problem. Medical people don't recognize it. There's not enough providers who do it correctly. And then you get into the controversy. Well, they're using it just to make money in their lazy. Um, people who dabble in it and do one here and one there shouldn't. You know, it's like I wouldn't go taking out wisdom teeth because I don't do it. And there's complications. When you start doing babies, if you've never done them, and I had one doctor come in here and said, oh, that's going to make me a lot of money. It's always a huge concern. That's unfortunate. Um, I've had other people don't want to spend the money in good lasers. The diodes don't really work that well, which is glorified electrosurge. And then once you start to do the babies, it changes your practice. Okay, so if we go back 25 years ago, before I was using lasers, and before COVID even, I was seeing 67 patients a day between hygiene and myself. With COVID, it gave me the opportunity to do what I wanted to do. Basically, that was rid of all my teenagers, concentrate more on surgery. Now, we do mostly surgery. We may do a couple of fillings a day because we're using lasers and we don't need to local, use local anesthetic. So lasers opened up a whole new world. So back in the late 90s, I got introduced to lasers. And actually, in the year 2000, I lectured at the Academy of Pediatric Dentistry and High-Tech Dentistry. And the only question I was asked was what I thought about lasers. So, obviously, I didn't know anything. So, my ignorance, I said, no, I think they're probably too dangerous to work on things. At that meeting, there were two laser companies. And I spent a day with each one. I mean, buying a laser. And they let me use it for about six weeks. And then I saw that it got better healing, faster healing, no bleeding, no swelling, no, no, no real problems. So, I bought into one wavelength, which was Erbium. Erbium, yeah. Right. Erbium doesn't have the same... Uh, ability to prevent bleeding because it, it really causes water to explode. That's what it does. So when you're doing tissue, you're exploding. When I used it for 13 years, 
when lasers came out, they had one, mm-hmm. you know, it's either, there's two different urban laser wavelengths, but that was it. Nobody knew anything about pulse duration. Nobody knew about, you know, pulse versus continuous wave, super pulse, all these different ways a laser can work. Nobody knew anything about photobiomodulation, low-level laser therapy, how that works, the progress swelling, and get analgesia. And then you couldn't, you can't really get good analgesia with diodes, so you have to numb everybody. And it's still a In about 2011, company called Conversion said they were going to develop a new carbon dioxide laser that would take care of all the problems. So they said, okay, I've got $250,000 worth of lasers, and they work. But they came in, instead of an hour, we spent almost a whole day talking. I went out to their facility in Boston, and uh, I worked with them to develop a Soleil laser, which is a 9,300 nanometer CO2. There's a 10,600 laser, too, but that, there are a couple of different companies, but it doesn't have water. Some of them don't have any names so I don't think they're the same. But it's cheaper, and people will buy it. That can be for 60,000, and this one here is 150,000. So... Wavelength is important. Mm-hmm. Pulse duration, speed, skill of the person, all these things come into play with interesting lasers. So now I morph my practice into doing primarily jet surgery, but I don't have an age for other than 18 years of pediatric dentist. I've done a few adults, but I find Kids are not little adults, but adults are big babies. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're much more demanding and can't finesse them as well. I've done some adults without local. Usually when I'm doing a training session and I'm on a live patient, I'll have one of them for me. But overall, I think that while I'm in practice, I'll be probably doing mostly surgery. I might want to take a time out here. So again, at this point in my practice, most of what I do is surgical procedures uh, with the laser. Probably... I'd say 85% of it is without numbing the patients. It's not just tongue ties and pernectomies, we do biopsies and stuff. Yeah, it took a huge new facility on my granddaughter who was like 12 out of her lip without numbing her. I told her she was gonna be sore all day and she went out and had pizza. I find lasers amazing, the fact that you can do that. How long have you been treating cavities with lasers? Well, Erbium was supposed to be painless. Okay, but it wasn't, right? It was maybe 50% of the time. I would say, 99% of the time, I don't know a patient. And you can work all the way down to maybe a two-year-old. You need someone to understand because it's with water. If you're going to have a full mouth of crowns and colpotomies, I'm going to know. I gave up my sedation license, and I don't go to the OR, and I gave up my narcotics license. I don't need it for that. And they kept raising the fees. And it was like three or 4000 a year for nothing. So I stopped taking any of those. We use primarily Dramamine for car sickness, mm-hmm. and that takes the edge of But I see no need to ever put a child, unless they're severely autistic and totally out of control, in the operating room for a 10-second procedure. If you need to do that, then you need to refer it to someone who doesn't need to do that. There are some cases medically, maybe, but for the most part, I haven't had put a kid in the OR to do any of the soft tissue surgery. So even the, everyone talks about the like one to four-year-old range as being like the hardest to release. They're the easiest because most of them you use topical on. You do use restraints. In other words, you're going to use a protective appliance like a pathway sport. If you use photobiomodulation, low-level mixer, so we put topical anesthetic on first. So I won't use local on it because I'll bite themselves. I haven't had to bite themselves in the last 20 years because we don't use that much. Um, but... 
if you've got a two and a half year old, maybe a three year old, what we'll do is we'll get them traveling, bring them in, we'll protect them, we'll put topical on, then we'll use low level laser therapy, which increases the topical aspect, take up, and it also reduces an analgesic effect. And then we'll give maybe, depending on the type of frenum, a few drops of local anesthetic into the frenum. And the procedure takes 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. You should be prepared for emergency type problems, whatever. Over in Europe, I mean, in Australia, they have kids that bleed out because I don't know what they're doing. But here, a wet tea bag that's not herbal, we use epinephrine uh, and pressure. Those are going to stop anything. And if you know where you are, you avoid any defenses. The lip, you get sometimes a little more bleeding if you go too far up, but it's attached. But again, you have a little battery operated electric surge, which will not go those capillaries. For the most part, we don't have a lot of problems. Occasionally, we'll get some bleeding, but parents will know about it because by the time I bring it back to the parent. The other thing is, you hear people, you know, parents should hold the baby while you're doing the surgery, which to me is nonsense. Okay. Your parents yeah. wouldn't go in an OR. That's correct. But I, and I've got doctors telling me to do it in the baby's car seat. Oh, those ones make me cringe. So yeah. There's a study over in Europe that showed that the baby's car seat has more bacteria than a toilet seat. Mm -hmm. Okay. Plus, I have two assistants helping me control the baby's head. And we were laser glasses and protected. And I've got pictures where there's no glasses on staff. There's no glasses on parents. I mean, the safety protocols are not being followed. And there's somebody out there just waiting to jump on us and say, look what happened. So the short is what we're talking about, story. What it comes down to is lasers are very quick, but fast. Rarely do you get any swelling and there have no infections. All lasers have what's known as photobiomodulation, which is low-level laser therapy, which shuts down the transfer of pain to the brain. I had two crowns. In an implant. So I have these little portable low level lasers. My best doesn't have lasers. So I put them on the buckle and limbo for one minute. And you did a crown prep on one side and then on the other side. The implant, they, they really wanted to numb because they pulled the tooth at the same time. But we put the low level laser into the alveolus for the appropriate time. They put the implant in the same day they took out the tooth, sutured everything up, and put the laser externally. Luckily, in the I never had any pain, and never swelled. And after two months of rebel, with the coping, pull, pull it out and put a crown. So you can get bone formation too. Mm. So lasers do a lot of things, and I could spend all day just talking about lasers. And I think people don't totally understand, and even other providers. I mean, definitely pediatricians and lactation consultants. They think all lasers are the same, and it's there's such a wide range of differences within lasers that it's well, and the capability like you're saying even within your laser it has more than just one capability the, the trouble with let's call it i don't like to call it the breastfeeding team anymore because we're not doing this for breastfeeding anymore. we're doing it for airway brain development yeah growth and development the jaws maternal comfort endocrine problems the tongue is just like the heart it's a muscle that basically is an organ and it affects the entire body of the baby and the mother yeah. and in turn the father because it's not a dyad it's a triad especially if you're going to be politically corrected at it's the mother the baby and the father it's not just the baby just the mother when a mother says to me i can suffer them pain 
I don't want to put my baby through it. You know, they'll let the baby suffer for six months or a year with reflux, which they're treating with drugs, which is never going to touch them. Right. It's not treating the right problem. And they're not treating the cause. They're not treating the cause, yeah. And there's a doctor in Chicago, Kevin Boyd, and, and he's right. Changing the terms, these aren't symptoms, they're comorbidities. Like what comorbidity is, you have a variety of problems. And individually, they may or may not seem to be related. But when you put them all together, they feed on one another. So when you have reflux, it affects eating. You have eating, it reflects failure to thrive. If you have an airway problem, it affects brain development. If the airway is blocked, the upper jaw doesn't develop. So all of these things individually create a much larger problem. That's why sometimes I get babies in and I look at the tongue and it's borderline. The lip is borderline. The cheek ties are borderline. But if you put them all together and you look at the symptoms, you realize they're working against each other. But there are too many out there who are giving parents wrong information. And, you know, it's like you go to a restaurant and they may have 100 people. One person comes in for whatever reason they got a bit. You know, they go to Google and they read a bit review. Okay. And that's what people see sometimes. And that's what they grab onto, especially in the medical profession. They don't grab on. You know, I do so many babies who have these problems, and I've never gotten a thank you or a wow from the pediatrician, the GI doctor, or anything else. So it's sad. Okay, and I'm sad about it because, you know, I work hard, and I help patients, and I feel badly because I get the wrong information. And yet the healthcare providers out there, even when they see the results, they say it's anecdotal or they say it's coincidental, but they'll never call up and say, oh, my God, I didn't have to put that kid in the operating And as you work on these things, you find out the tongue has many, many more things to do with it. About two weeks ago, I had a chiropractor referring an eight-year-old who's a, they call him a toe walker. Mm-hmm. She's never walked on her feet. And he said, they've tried everything. The pediatrician is adamant they want the kids to undergo surgery in the hospital. She'll be tied up six months or so. But he said, let's try this. He sent it to me. She was severely tongue-tied. Well, from the tip of your head to your toes, your body is encased in fashion. Yeah. We release the tongue as you walk across the room with it. Okay, she needs body work because yeah. her knees and her back are all out of whack from the way she's been working. But that's how the coordination of the specialties needs to work. Not having chiropractors say, oh, I can fix everything without surgery. Not having a lactation person tell me with a class four tongue tie that they can fix it, they don't need surgery. The first 90 days, that baby's brain is growing at 1% per day. And if you screw around for three, four months trying to do something, you miss an opening and the baby suffers for the rest of their life. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you if you see a kid who dies as soon as you call up the, the medical examiner, the pathologist, and ask them, was the child tongue-tied? The answer is, what's a tongue And it's, I don't have an answer, okay? But all of these crazy people going around shooting people, did they ever bond to their mother as a controversial, with a confrontation? Did they ever have a happy childhood? Because it was frustrating. They had the ADD and ADHD. But no they ever get a good night's sleep? Correct. If they don't get a good night's sleep, yeah. I know if, if I don't get a good night's sleep, she stays away from me that day because it's going to be brutal. Okay? And you come in here and you want to work after a bad night, you know, it makes it harder for you and the patients because you're tired and you have to fight your way through. But if this goes on day after day, year after year, 
become a loner, it's a social and So what do you want to talk about? Well, I just, I think the toe walking is really interesting. I see that with toddlers. I have a couple of toddlers I'm seeing right now and they're both toe walkers. And one of them I ask, I ask the parents to send me a lot of videos. Toddlers don't like to sit in front of a screen unless maybe Mickey Mouse for a few minutes, but they're just not going to, and they're definitely not going to want to do what I ask them to do or what their parents ask them to do. So they'll send me videos of them sitting, standing, looking, moving, doing things so we can get a feel for what they're doing. And this one mom sent me these videos of how her daughter sleeps. And I was like, is this how it's been for the last two, I mean, almost two years, she's 22 months old. And she said, yeah. So two moms with same age baby, one of them has spent 22 months holding her child upright for sleep. She's like, neither of us have ever had a good night's sleep. The other one sleeps in a very inclined with her butt up in the air, right? Both very abnormal sleep positions. But I'm like, that mom is so sleep deprived. She's like, we've never had a good night's sleep in almost two years. And it's a very, it's a very complicated kid. She's got a ton of airway issues, more than I typically would expect to see for a tongue-tied two-year-old. I mean, gasping for air, sleep disorder, breathing, probably really sleep apnea at not even two. And, you know, going to some of these amazing best places in the world, they're going to the Stanford sleep and airway stuff. And they keep saying, nope, there's nothing wrong. And I'm like, what do you mean there's nothing wrong? I don't, even if you don't agree with my unofficial diagnosis, since I can't legally diagnose anyways, even if you don't agree, it's a tongue tie. Don't tell a mom that their child gasping for air who can't sleep and can't breathe is normal. That's what you're essentially saying. You're sending her home saying there's no problem because it's normal. I have on my website a form for sleep. It's 30 different symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I've had kids come in here who've had three sleep studies that were told to be negative. Yet, if you rate these symptoms zero to three, they have 80% twos and threes. So I don't care what the sleep study says. Your child is sleep deprived. Yeah. They have circles under your eyes. They're seven years old. They're still wetting their bed. I mean, the things that are related to this time, when I started my practice almost 50 years ago, if you had told me what I'd be doing what I'm doing today, I would have said you're out of your mind. That is not dentistry. But medicine is not taking the whole thing. And the dentists are the one that are doing it. And we're doing more benefit for our children medically by doing oral procedures, surgeries, and keeping kids out of the OR, keeping kids healthy. And we don't get the respect we don't get the admiration. We don't get the understanding from the medical community. I mean, a tongue tie is a, in a way, this is a preventative health treatment, right? This is this is prevention of all these future problems. It's not truly preventative because we are treating problems that are happening right now from the tongue tie. I get that, but we know what's going to happen. And I. So I've been a lactation consultant now six years. I was a nurse in labor and delivery before that. So I've been a nurse for 22 and my girls are 10 and 13. Didn't know they were tongue-tied, just knew I was struggling. And everyone told me it was fine or it was my fault. You know, it was either positional or I had an oversupply. I just made too much, all these types of things. Or my baby was just a happy spitter. I got that a lot with my second and didn't know why my five-year-old had TMJ that you could hear her jaw pop. Or, you know, all of these headaches, recurrent headaches for my older child. And they finally got released this year um, down in Florida with Maggie Davis at Florida Tongue Tie. And 
it's funny on the toe walking, my 13 year old said during the release, she's like, whoa, mom, my right foot feels different. And I said, what do you mean? Because I'm like, I'm like, I want to hear all this. You know, it's it's so different than the babies. They can't explain what it feels like. And so it's wonderful to me to hear what it's like for older children and adults. And I said, so tell me more about it. And she's like, I don't know. It's just, she thought her foot was always like that. She's like, it always felt one way and now it's way looser and I can move it and it's not tight. Because so the body fashion was worse. Right. So it's I did one mother. Incredible. Yeah. Well, actually, if you do a newborn, if you do a toddler or a newborn, and your assistant is holding the baby correctly, it's under the chin. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I release the top, she can feel a higher job. She can feel the jaw relaxed. Mm-hmm. But there's one woman, she had two kids she brought to me, and she was willing to come in on a weekend when I was doing surgery training. And she got, I can't believe this. My whole face was like, it's dropped down. All the pressure, all the pain. Well, everything in my neck, my head, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I feel like crying. It's like everything that's been there all my life, you just got rid of in 10 minutes, five seconds. You know, it's crazy. But the problem is not doing the surgery. It's getting people to understand it's not that bad. They're sore for a week. It's a lifetime that they've got a few of those. Right. So that's great. Yeah, and the aftercare, so are you doing, when you do older children and adults, are you still doing phrenectomies or are you doing phrenoplasties? Are you suturing or are you leaving them all open for aftercare? Well, I don't really know what the difference between a phrenectomy and a phrenoplasty. To me, you release the attachment. doesn't matter what you want to call it. Okay. okay. If, you're, if you're a 16-year-old and you've got a friend that's an inch and a half long, I may suture them. But I don't suture anybody under, say, 10 or 12. I have never done that. I would never suture a baby because that's right. what they want to put in the OR. The tissue, it's only one cell thick. They can't get a good they don't suture. Need that. Yeah. Well, you can't get a suture. Mm-hmm. Okay. The number of sutures I do a year to do it, on, you count them on two hands, or a lot. But if you're 15 or 16, you've driven three hours to see me and I don't have any control, and you're not going to go back and see my functional therapist after I'm done or back to one that you've referred into me, you know, I may suture because. I will hold it for a few days. If you're local, I may use silk, okay? But if you're, if I do any searching, usually it's got so I don't have to remove it because I don't have to put that in silk. But I think with the laser, most of it you don't have to suture if you stress the aftercare. <laughs> and uh, I developed a new instrument so I showed you before, the, the tongue guide. I'm excited for Armored Dental. And it's interesting, the comments from parents, because those who are coming for their second child, their third child, when they go home and show them how to use it, they come back a week later, they say, this is a life changer. It's so much easier to do. So much less stress is so much easier. Yeah. So it's been available since about March or April. Can families order it from your website? Uh, the doctors can order it through Armour Dental. Okay. Uh, families don't really need to order it. Doctor, we give it to them. Uh, we have other things. This is another instrument for comfort, comfort soft. But you use this for assessment. Mm-hmm. You can pull the cheek out. You can move around with the tongue. It can be used for oral care, showing them how to brush with braces on. It's bendable, so you can pull the cheek out. If you're doing certain types of laser surgery, instead of using a mirror, it's easier. Uh, there's a whole, probably about eight six to eight different instruments on the, on the website for a variety of different instruments. And this one here has just been developed. The owner went out to the Special Olympics and they exempted over 600 kids using it. It's just that it's plastic and it's soft and it's comfortable and it's gentle. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, on my website, it goes over how to use it and what it's used for for all of them. Yeah, I mean... And, uh, but, 
the doctors who have been seen in that meetings are buying up groups of thousands. What I'm seeing from parents or what I hear most is that they feel like their hands are too big. They're like, I can't get in there. I can't do it. And I do understand. I mean, these babies are sometimes their mouths are tiny. And I think a lot of it just comes from fear, right? They're just afraid they're going to hurt their baby. And we do a lot of practicing and talking, but still there's nothing like that first night of trying to do it after a procedure. The parents well, get the nervous. Mother's hormones are going all over. And she doesn't want to have the baby cry. Right. And the father's hands are usually twice as big as mine. And the baby's mouth is about an inch wide or less. Yeah. And that's the other thing about the laser. This laser I use doesn't go in the mouth. The laser beam like, can be two inches away. So my laser is not in the mouth. Using the instruments which we now do for surgery, because the surgical instruments, instead of using the metal tongue director, they're placed and they're soft and they're more ergonomic. So they, they work a lot better. And it's, I tell you, I haven't used one of the metal ones in, in the last 10 months. Uh, it's in my hands so well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took us almost a year to develop it. So it was foolproof, covering all the bases. Somebody couldn't say, well, it's too smooth, it's too this, it's too that. It doesn't need to be improved. I can use those all day long. You know, my staff throughout all the metal ones. So they didn't want me to think about using it. Yeah, some, I mean, I find some providers use lovely group director or a version like this, but some providers prefer to just use their hands. And some don't use anything. You That's know, they're just in there getting them with their hands. If you don't use the correct instruments. Plus, I can remember when I graduated dental school, and I heard one guy talking, it's said, 30 years ago I graduated dental school, and I'm using my same high-speed amputees now. If you don't keep up with the technology and the newer instruments, you're making your life more difficult. And you're not giving your patients the quality care they deserve. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm... You need I'm, to invest in your, in your practice. Yeah, I'm a big fan of education, and I will always say that I want to learn something every day. I tell my kids that all the time. I'm like, we should all learn something in life every day, but especially professionals. And, you know, we'll talk to them about that, that you want someone in every aspect of your life, any provider you're going to, whether it's medical, a lawyer, anybody, you want someone who's up on things, who knows what's changing. I mean, you wouldn't go to a CPA who hasn't read any new tax law in the last sure. 20 years, right? I mean, you we all need to learn and we need to stay current as to changes because everything evolves and changes. Language evolves and changes. I mean, my husband was a language teacher for 15 years and he would tell people all the time, language changes. You know, words evolve and people think that's stagnant, but it doesn't. There are words in the dictionary that were not there 30 or 40 years ago. And the way we use the words that may have been there can have a totally different meaning. Everything evolves and changes. And if you're not... If you're not up on that, then maybe it's retirement time. I don't know. If you if you get to that point where you just don't care and you don't want to learn, then maybe you're not in the right spot. I agree completely. And plus, it's got to come from the parents because when you talk to the universities and the schools, the people on top aren't interested. They say they don't want to change. They don't want to learn. They're not open-minded. They have blindness. They don't want to upset the apple core. You yeah. know, when I hear Stay in your own lane. I said, if I'm in a car and I'm doing 60 miles an hour and the guys in front of me are doing 40 miles an hour, I'm not going to stay in my own lane. I'm going to move out and pass. Hey, it takes a village to build whatever you want. But the village has to be knowledgeable or else it's going to come crumbling down. So the bottom line is parents are going to change. They have to demand after treatment that physicians learn about. Somewhere the medical community has to open their eyes. The medical schools, the dental schools, 
the medical residencies, and the dental residencies have to start looking about technology and procedures that are evolving. And you can't depend upon randomized control studies on babies. We know things work in ethics. There's, there's an ethical consideration. You know, the dean of the school at Buffalo wrote an article. He says, sometimes you have to really look at what you're talking about. I just invented a new thing. I put it on your back in the foolish core. It's called a parachute. But I have 12 people. Six of you are going to have, you all have a backpack, but only six of you are going to have a parachute. And we're going to go up in the sky and we're going to jump out of an airplane. Okay, I want to prove to you that my parachute is going to work and save your life. But the control is those of you who don't have it. And we know they're going to die. Yeah. So at this point, we know that babies, kids who are tongue-tied, have a list of significant comorbidities. Right. And it's unethical to sit around and create these studies that are worthless just to prove a point. Sometimes experience oversees that. Secondly, scientific method doesn't require control. What it requires is I do something, you do it, we can replicate the same results. So if you've got thousands of people doing the same thing and you're getting good results, that's enough science to need to know. If it's wrong, you better do the study and prove it wrong because you can't. Well, there's five levels of research too, right? I mean, evidence-based practice is the bottom level and the double-blind placebo study is top, I believe. And it's like, there's there's middle ground. There are other things. It is not always ethical. Like you said, I mean, withholding treatment on babies, it's when you know, you know that they need treatment, whether you agree with the tongue-tie procedure or not, even if they're starting these studies trying to prove, disprove that it works, they know that something is wrong with these babies and withholding treatment when, you know, weeks matter, days matter for these babies. I mean, if you want to talk about doing it on adults, that's a whole different thing because we can wait. You know, I discovered that I'm tongue-tied earlier this year. It just never occurred to me. I, I don't know. I just never thought about my own stuff and I have other health issues and I had a shoulder replacement. I've had plenty of other things to worry about and two kids. And and I finally realized it was like, ah, that explains my whole childhood. It's like the whole symptom list, but I'm still working on when's the right time for me to do it because my body has a lot of other issues and I need to deal with my, I need to get my health better for that. Yeah, I can afford to wait. Related to your they might. And we're trying to find that that middle ground of like, I tried to start, I started some body work and I had a massive pain flare. I have chronic pain and I couldn't walk for three days. And I was like, okay, I'm not ready yet. Let's give it a few months. Let's cool off. Let me see if I can get my body to stop being so inflammatory and then we'll try again. And so this winter, that's probably where I'm going back to and we'll try again, but I can afford to wait a few months, right? You, you've got a two week old. They can't afford to wait three months or six months. Like this is, detrimental to their, not just their breastfeeding journey, but like you said, their growth and development, you know, you stagnate them in that first year. I mean, that's massively different. I mean, I have, I've worked with clients that have had severe feeding issues in that first year that were just, you know, a couple of twins recently that come to mind that had severe feeding, feeding issues. I mean, mom took out a bunch of food and still they had they just had major issues and they were very, I mean, I came in very late on it, but very stunted until a year. And even now I'm like looking at those kids and I'm like, they're going to be petite. 
like their growth and development, their entire trajectory in life changed from that first year of life, from what was possible. And granted, we can't know exactly what they were going to be, but you can look at their parents, you can look at their siblings, you can look at their even their first week or two of life. And then you can look at where they just fell right off that curve and know that it's changed their trajectory of life. That first year of life is massively important. And, you know, and I tell clients all the time, just like you said earlier, that while breastfeeding is hugely important to me, if you're going to formula bottle feed your baby, fine. That's not the issue here. The issue is airway development for life. I had a baby today, a twin, who was tight and she was having problems. And I said, what about your other baby? She said, no, she's nursing fine. So they watched the video, they went a little paperwork. I said, maybe I should bring the baby in because she's spitting up all the time. <laughs> baby has reflux. She's not nursing fine. But yeah. the physicians don't recognize. They said the doctors want to put her on Pepsi. Right. They said, look, you're going to treat physical problem with a drug. That's all you're doing. It's not going to do anything. Right. Anyway, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. We were preaching to the choir. Okay. We need to send these blanks to the medical schools and let these people open up their eyes and listen to them. Uh, I think parents are more open to understanding because they want their kids to be healthy and grow up healthy. And we change lives, care, and that's what we do it. And that's why you don't retire because yeah. it's, it's not difficult surgery, but it's difficult aftercare, which we're working on making it plus tremendous. Yeah, the aftercare is, is always hard. And I find there's such a variation. There's, I mean, I've heard I've heard a few providers, I can only think of, actually, I can only think of one who would tell the parents to do it every two hours around the clock for two weeks. And I was like, oh my gosh, I said, these parents are going to fall over. Well, not only that, but the baby will have and oral aversion. Oral aversion, yeah. And they're not going to bond. And yeah. it's not going to make a difference because right. if you do it every two hours, the tissue's never going to heal. Yeah. There's a range. In There's that fine line of. Okay, between. Yeah. No. How often is often enough and how often is too much and how often is not enough. Yeah. And I'm going to go by what I see patient after patient. Interestingly enough, I see a patient a week later. Mm-hmm. So last week I was on vacation. So all the patients I did the week before came in this week. And, you know, let's say that for 40 babies, I saw maybe 30 of them back this week from 25. I found it very interesting after two weeks, I think I reopened two. And I'm wondering maybe if one week post-surgery is too soon to see what's going on, that you need to go two weeks out. Because at the end of two weeks, when you saw the little kid came in with the upper lip tie, mm-hmm. it was completely healed. I saw a few babies today that were completely healed. Is it harder to reopen at two weeks if they yeah, have not been do doing? Okay. So if they've not been doing good aftercare, you can still get in there then. That's and, good. and it also gives them two weeks of working on position, working with the lactation person. We all have tissue, which we call tethered. Mm-hmm. We only need to work on it when it's restrictive enough to cause symptoms. Then you have to know what the symptoms you're looking for. I, mean, I have a tough time in terms of there's an attachment of my tongue, but I have no symptoms. I don't have TMJ. I don't have headaches. I, I don't have a speech problem. I don't have any of the symptoms. So it, it, it's not going to be something that I'm going to look at because I don't have any reason to release it yet. I've got mothers that come in when the kid is three and I have for the first visit. The kid is tied to the tip. And I say, you have no nursing problem? No. He's a great nurser. But when I start asking them questions, they don't relate the problems they had to nursing. Right. And the medical community doesn't. 
he spit up all the time or had trouble sleeping, was a colicky baby. Colic, I know. <laughs> I'm like, that one, it just irritates me. I'm like, that's a symptom, not a diagnosis. What's I think what's really bothersome about colic is that when that happens, when you go to a pediatrician at three months and they say, oh, you've got a colicky baby, they basically check a box off and they say, come and see me in two months or three months. And that's it. And they tell you, you know, you can read about it. You can go online. You can just, you know, try to soothe your baby. But they're just going to cry for hours on end, for months on end. And like, they've done nothing. They haven't offered any other solutions. They haven't offered any support. And these are parents that we see that will have, you know, severe feeding issues. And they'll, you know, they'll stop breastfeeding because of it's so overwhelming to have a baby cry for hours and hours on end. And these are babies that would also not surprisingly wind up with shaken baby syndrome and stuff as well. Well, that's another thing, you know, but the, the way you get an answer. So I once gave a lecture and I said that all of these young parents, especially the fathers who get arrested for murdering the kid for shaken baby syndrome. The mother goes out, the baby's crying, the baby the father doesn't know what to do. He just not to kill a kid, he shakes a kid. Yeah. And I said, I wonder how many of these kids had reflux and they were sick and no one no one really looked at it. It's there's no excuse to do that to a child, but there's a limit for a young parent. Oh yeah. And one of the people made a comment. So you don't think young parents can be young people can be good parents. I said, you're missing what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm saying that there are instances where this baby is crying nonstop. And as a parent who's young and intolerant to it, they kind of do something that they would not normally have done if their life is ruined and they yeah. try out And when I worked in the NICU in San Francisco, I had one shaken baby syndrome and I will never forget that child or that family. And they were all devastated. And there was... There was really no true malice. There was no true forethought. It was a reaction that was very poor and a very exhausted, overwhelmed, unsupported family. And even myself as a child, not surprisingly, being a tongue-tied baby, my mom said I cried a lot. My mom was young. I was 20. She was 24 and had a four-year-old and me. And my dad had just gotten out of the service and was doing everything herself and was, you know, fairly unprepared for how much work a screaming baby was all the time. And she tells me that she lived in a small town in California. She used to put me in the car seat and put me on the front porch in the middle of the night. And she'd sit and watch TV and watch me out the window. And she's like, well, first of all, no one was going to kidnap a screaming baby. And she said it was that, or she was going to shake me, but she didn't know what else to do. She was so over exhausted, overstressed, like completely without any any support and didn't know what to do. And, you know, it was years later, the pediatrician that she found with my youngest brother told her that I was the kind of kid that would have had shaken baby syndrome because I just never, I didn't stop crying until I was six months old. She said it it was rare if I was sleeping or nursing, otherwise I was screaming any other time. And it was, I was miserable as a baby. So if you go back and listen to this entire interview, you're going to hear a thread. The thread through the entire thing is, the tongue is an organ that affects the entire body, growth and development, our interaction with our parents and friends, our interrelationships. It's not just a simple muscle for taste right. and moving food around. And, and that's the message people have to understand. We're not releasing the tongue to make money. We're releasing the tongue because it's involved in so many things. And with COVID, 
again, COVID has changed things because when I did surgery, I needed one assistant and myself. With COVID, I need two assistants because I need one fully gown and draped and ready to go where we work. We treated as major surgery and they need another one to get us a supply we might need so we don't have to break whatever we're doing to go with it. And patients have become like a day school. They show up without masks and you can't charge them. But we have to provide two or three masks sometimes. So we have to raise our fees. And if we're working with insurance companies, they don't want to do it. So there's so much. We could sit here and talk. My lecture, without covering something, we'll talk about seven hours long. We could sit here probably for two full days and talk about all of the interaction with the tongue and how it works. And not even touch upon one thing that the medical community either understands. Well, I mean, I don't truly understand where the split in dentistry and medicine happened hundreds of years ago, but how did how did we they decide that the mouth was not a part of the body? It's like they completely annex the mouth out and they're like, oh, this little piece doesn't affect anything else. It's the entire start of your GI system. It's your peristaltic wave. It's a think full about part of dentistry your airway. Began. Where did dentistry begin? In a barbershop. Pulling teeth. Pulling teeth. It was, it was, you know, when a parent says to me, well, what happened to babies 200 years ago when they were tied I said, what was the life expectancy of a person 200 years ago? 30? Okay. What was the life expectancy? How many babies died in childhood? And we didn't have formula. Now, even today, when we talk about breastfeeding and parents who are telling me they're not nursing, they're only going to pump. I'm going to say, listen, has anyone sat down and told you that when you pump, that you should pump morning, afternoon, and evening and keep them separate because your milk content during the day changes and that your morning milk has more fats and then your evening milk. So if you're going to just pump, then make sure you, you pump the right time and then you give the baby the right pump to milk. Yeah, the evening milk has more melatonin in it to help the baby wind down and go to sleep. I mean, our bodies are amazingly... Yeah, complex and yet simple right the baby needs to go to sleep they increase the melatonin in the milk it's time for baby to go to bed like all these things in our body just make sense when they work but when they don't things just kind of fall apart so my assumption is in most cases when you're interviewing people who are doing tongue ties they're talking about tongue ties most of them don't even those who do a lot don't understand the interrelationship of what they're doing with the rest of the body some do mm-hmm. but Many of them, because I've heard people lecturing, but like you said, the one PD ENT who started a blog a few weeks ago that he only has to cut the interior part. And when people hear that, okay, it gives them such bad information. I try not to step on other people's toes and blogs because it just creates just a fight. Yes. But I could not deal with that because he's respected. And I said, you're wrong. Okay, you're giving people the wrong information. And I said, I correct those things. That are done halfway. And I always say it's like doing a half a circumcision, buying a half a car, buying a half a. You don't want to do. You're not going to pay to have someone do something, pay half your house, and say it's fine. You need to understand the surgical procedure. But I find ENTs, especially, they want to put everybody in the R. They don't remember what ENT stands for. This may be political. Your nose and throat. There's a reason the oral cavity is not part of it. It's because you don't get that information. Second thing is, they're taught to put everybody in the OR. They don't do in-office surgery at all, where we do it the opposite. Mm-hmm. Okay. I haven't been to the operating room probably almost 45 years because as a dentist, it's a dirty case. I would be the first one bumped. 
I would do it on weekends. It would get canceled. So I'm going to learn how to do sedation. And it's a whole other discussion. But yeah, on sedation for for children. And, so, anyway. yeah. But it's, it's a very complicated thing. And I think, you know, I... I don't mind the analogy of the string under the tongue so much. I I think that people visualize it like that. But even today, I was saying to a client before I came and saw you, I said that that overly simplifies it. You have to understand that that's just a metaphor, that the tongue is so complex. I mean, it's even like nasal breathing. I'm like, do you know how many functions our nose does? And we don't think about it at all. I'm like, our nasal breathing is exceptionally important. And having that mouth sealed, having those lips sealed, having that tongue elevated and having nasal breathing when you sleep is going to completely change the quality of your sleep. And the development of your facial jokes. Yep. And your mood. I mean, the key piece I tell parents is the minute you affect sleep, you affect everything about that person. You affect how their hormones are happening. You affect weight gain, both negatively as a baby and negatively sometimes as an adult. You'll have more weight gain with less sleep. But you affect every part of them, their mood, their interactions with others, their you know skill at work or at school if you're a child. All of those things are going to be affected negatively by not having quality sleep. Absolutely. And I, I think that there are millions and millions of Americans driving around on the highway today that don't have quality sleep. And it's too often just thought of as, well, that's what we do with parents. Kids don't sleep well and it's... We're not addressing the root cause, but I think I'm a big fan of things like functional medicine or a naturopath or somebody who wants to find that root cause as opposed to allopathic medicine, which on a whole, I mean, there are unicorns everywhere, but on a whole, allopathic medicine is more symptomatic treatment based. You know, will you have pain? That's we'll the give way you physicians this are taught. Right. Find the problem and you treat it medically. Right. And you mean, don't look for the source. Yeah. You have pain. They give you a pain med. It's like, well, why don't we stop the pain from happening? And then you won't need the pain med because with the pain med comes, you know, maybe a med for constipation and maybe an antidepressant and maybe all these other things. Absolutely. Instead of just finding out what was really wrong and treating that and understanding how the body works. But I also find I'm blown away by how little some physicians really understand how the body functions and how it should function. I'm not blown away by it because I see it every day. Yeah. I feel badly. And it makes me sad it does. because it, it just bothers me that parents are given so much poor information. But sometimes, you know, did you ever hear of Oscar's Razor? No. It's, it's a philosophy by an old one. It says, usually the simplest answer is the correct answer. Yes. Okay. So when I see these kids coming in with endoscopies and NG tubes and stomach tubes and surgery and medication, and no one looks at the time for a 12-second procedure, all of this stuff could have been saved. Mm-hmm. It's the mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, it's very true. And it's it's unfortunate the way medicine is not addressing root cause and how we're not they're not even recognizing that these symptoms all go together, that colic and reflux and poor weight gain are all caused by one thing. It's like they're trying to find three different things. And and if you look at enough, like you do, if you look at enough babies, you would see that there's a common thread in all of them. Absolutely. So I'm very thankful to have been here today. I know we're probably running out on time for you, but this is, are we okay? You want to talk for 20 minutes or half an hour? I'm talking for almost an hour. I know. (laughs) I think we could talk all day, right? I mean, I think it's. When you're preaching to the choir, we can talk. We just talk about the same thing in different terms sometimes and talk in circles about the same thing. 
the information comes down to we need to get the medical community to understand what we do is not anecdotal and it's not just to make money. We're helping people and changing people's lives for the better. I mean, on a side note, the whole money thing is completely insulting and ignorant also. I mean, you could say the same thing to doctors. They didn't go into a field, become poppers either. But dentistry, from what I understand, all the dentists that I've spoken with say that dentistry can be a lucrative field and it it is easier to just do regular things. That tongue tie stuff is more headache and more work. And most of the people in this got in this because they have a passion for it, whether it was the seeing the, the difference of the lives that they could do in their own you know, patients or whether it was a personal experience, but they, they are invested and they've seen the outcomes and they're doing it for true healing and help. They're not, I mean, I don't see a lot of physicians or dentists doing this for, for money. I mean, it's, it's way more headache from what I understand, you know, especially if God forbid you want to deal with insurance from what I understand, phrenectomies with insurance are definitely not as easy as, you know, a regular cleaning or whatever. And so, yeah, and it depends upon their goal. They, we've gotten to the point now, insurance, we we, we take probably 80% of the Medicaid insurances because no one will treat these kids. No, no one will. So that's, that's they, amazing right there. They, 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 won't treat, they won't treat it and they'll go untreated, but the amount of medical complications that they will treat related to it costs them a hell of a lot more money. Than what we're costing. I mean, you got Delta of Massachusetts who says you can't do a tongue tie, they won't cover it until the baby, the child is six years or older. Okay. By then, it's a problem. I remember when I, I started I... taking Medicaid, they wouldn't let us do stainless steel crowns. So I said, okay, so here's what's going to happen. You've got a large filling, which I'm going to put a big filling in, it's going to fail. Then I'm going to do a pulpotomy and put another big filling in, that's going to fail. Then I'm going to do an extraction. And then either I need to put a spacer in. Or they're going to have a major orthodontic problem. Okay, so you're going to spend thousands of dollars to where if I just put a crown on that tooth in the beginning, okay, would it cost you a little more than a filling? But that's the end. But cost, you know, I I know that I knew the chief financial officer at Oldman Medical Center. And I asked him, if I put this child in the OR to do a tongue tie release, what's the cost? So over $5,000. So it doesn't matter what I charge. It's cheaper for the insurance company to keep it in my office than to go to the OR. Mm-hmm. One of the local insurance companies here, the audit, at the end of the audit, I said, you know, you wasted my time. What you should do is call me up and say, we're going to institute a policy that all of our pediatricians require a three to six hour course of tongue ties. Would you like to do it? I said, that would be far more beneficial than wasting your time and my time auditing me because I got red flagged because I do so many phrenectomies, which I told you I was in doing. So don't come back and audit me again because I'll just get rid of you as an insurance company. I don't care. Your patients will pay me cash. Yeah, it's an amazingly frustrating thing, the whole insurance. That's a whole nother whole nother day there on, on the We don't have any problems and they pay it. The patient's still up front. If we don't own your insurance, you pay us up front, we'll submit the insurance and you fight with it. We want it. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean the fact that you accept any insurance is actually really amazing. Some I'm I'm finding it's not that uncommon for ten type of writers to accept no insurance. There's a decent amount of them out there that don't do any insurance. They'll hand a super bill over and they're like, good luck, but they want payment up front. And that's, it's challenging because that's making it harder and harder for families to have access to well, something that is going to definitely impact their child's health. The thing is, you have to realize that in most cases, the families who are coming in aren't people who've got jobs, they're well-established, they're young people starting out. They don't have insurance in some cases. They don't have a lot of money that's extra. I mean, 
pizzeria store as well. Anyway, so we're talking the same thing here. I think it's just lovely that you're here, though, and I think it's, you know, I don't know when your retirement will happen, but I think that it's it's a wonderful thing that you're here and helping these this amount of families every day. And, you know, I this area is going to have a giant gaping hole one day when that does eventually no, no, happen. There's always my hands and eyes working on it. I mean, I'm fortunate, two things. One is I, I have a lot of referrals now, but probably the most support of my family, but equally as my staff's been with me for 40 years in many cases, and they know what we do, and they're not going to do this. And it makes it easier you don't have to deal with the stupidity of the job market today in most cases. Yeah. Uh, you know, what this COVID has done and this government has done, I don't even want to go into that with people not wanting to work and harder to get people. And they put out the door and people still pick people from one place to another. What else doesn't exist? Well, it rarely exists from employers too. So the fact that you've been here and had them so long speaks to both them and you that you know, you're obviously a good employer for them to want to stay and they're good employees for you to want them to stay. So I think this is just, it's a wonderful service that you're able to do for families. And like you said, some families are traveling very far to come and get expert care. So I think that it's a wonderful thing that you're here and able to help them. And and I thank you very much for letting me come and learn from you today and see your office and and try to get the information out there. I mean, that's, that's my goal right now with the podcast is to just start getting people to question why to be curious and to want to learn and to dive into this space well hope this helps you thank you so much it's been a pleasure when you change the way you look at things the things you look at change you i hope that you enjoyed the podcast today and learned something new if you know someone who would benefit from this podcast please share